and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When the Deepwater Horizon exploded in April of 2010, it took three months to cap the well. It spilled 210 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, and 47,000 people and 7,000 ships were involved in the cleanup. Have you had any spills in your life that you tried to handle alone but couldn't? Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled Cleansing, using passages from Genesis 3, Luke 8, and Hebrews 10. Thank you for joining us today. When Randy leaves, he does something uh, that is so gracious. I mean, he, instead of you know, always calling the shots and say, David, preach on this and that, sometimes that occurs, but that's very rare for Randy. Instead, what he does usually is he says, here's a, I want you to preach on whatever it is that you want to preach on. And so I am given a lot of freedom, uh, unless I'm joining in with another series, uh, I'm given a lot of freedom to think about what it is that, um, that, that, we, that I want to talk about. And so this particular subject came up about a year and a half ago. Now, I haven't been preparing this message for a year and a half, week in and week out, but about a year and a half ago, I began to dwell deeply on this thought and then felt this was the time to be able to come in and to preach it. And uh, then I found out Monday morning in our staff meeting, uh, as I was walking through uh, the notes with our staff, they said, you know, and one of them pulled out their iPad, you know, that's exactly what Randy said. <laughs> was, he, he went through this exact thing here in this particular sermon. So I was not here last week, did not get a chance to hear it. And so when I went back and listened to it, I thought, oh man, I, this is so similar. Um, I wonder if I should change directions. Um, but being a good Presbyterian, trusting in the providence of God and in his sovereignty, I said, no, I think instead, I think God has something for us. I think God wants us to sit on a thought for a little while. And here's basically what it is. We know what it's like to be forgiven positionally before God. We know that God has forgiven us because of the work of Christ. So Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we could not die. He was raised to life, ascended back into heaven, sits on the right hand of God, and his work is finished. And the result of his work is that all who come to him in faith throw their arms up in the air, surrendering the controls of their life over to him, trusting solely in what Christ has done. All who come in this position are forgiven. All sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know what it's true, that we went from being dark, sinful, to being light, sinless, positionally. Meaning this is the way God views us. And yet at the same time, is it not true for us? that we struggle with a guilty conscience. We believe that the scripture is true. We believe that it's telling us the right thing. We believe that God inspired the words. He put them through the authors. They went down on paper in the book that is like no other book on the globe. The Bible tells us that we are forgiven. Therefore, we accept that we are forgiven. And at the same time, our consciences kill us. So what do we do? How do we live in light of the truth, knowing that so many times I'm gripped? I'm gripped by fear, by anxiety. I'm gripped by the memories that I can't let go of. 
For, for those of us who have harmed someone else in the process, it's oftentimes difficult to let that go. And we replay it over and over and over in our minds. We know we're forgiven, but we sure don't feel forgiven. I'm going to give you the exact same three application points that Randy gave last week. My wording is just a little bit different. And I'll point that out for you when we get to the end, but the the end of what it is that God has called us to, it's the exact same. It's almost like he and I are reading from the same Bible. So can I just ask you from last week, did you put it into practice? Did you hear what it is that he said to you? He just happened to be using a dude named Randy. Did you hear what God had to say and and did you just put it into practice or did you walk away and forget what it was like today? You got a great opportunity to put it into practice again. Now, I want to give you a couple of points. We're going to read from Hebrews and uh, and then we're going to look at a couple of illustrations in scripture about how this is true. But I want to, I want to give to you uh, the the points uh, for the, uh, for the, uh, for the message tonight, your points to remember for those of you who uh, take notes and, and uh, do well with that. Our consciences hurt and our consciences heal. Our consciences hurt, first of all, rightly when we sin against God or when we sin against others. Our consciences rightly hurt when we sin against God or when we sin against others. When we receive the instructions from the Lord, do this or do not do this, and we don't do what it is that he's asked us to do, or we do that which he has asked us not to do, our conscience is hurt. It's one of God's most gracious gifts that he's given to us. It lets us know that we are living in such a manner that is not in accord to the way that he desires us to live. Eventually, if we continue to ignore him over and over and over again, our consciences will be seared and we will die. Our consciences also hurt rightly when we sin against others, though, and this is also a good thing. When we sin against others, there's something that cringes inside of us, and if that did not happen, if that was not the case, then we would turn out to be serial killers. If we had nothing that that, that inside of us internally said, whoa, stop, that's damaging, that's harmful, then we would just take advantage of anyone and everyone that we came in contact with. Conscience is a good thing. But now hear this. Our consciences also hurt wrongly, though. And they hurt wrongly when others sin against God and or against us. And oftentimes we take on the guilt of that unnecessarily. Mom, dad, you ever do this with your children? Do you have an adult child who has a drug issue and you feel the guilt and the shame of that? You're a child, your parents divorced, you feel the guilt and the shame of that? Has someone done something to you that was not your fault and yet you have been carrying the weight of it for years? Our consciences oftentimes will kill us when it is not our fault, and we simply cannot get rid of it. We try the best that we can to manage it, to deal with it, but it doesn't go away. Our consciences also, though, can heal. 
They hurt when those things are true, but our consciences can heal first when our sin is exposed or when any sin is exposed. When we have an opportunity to walk before someone else, be it a friend, be it a counselor, uh, be it a pastor, uh, be it whomever it may be, even uh, better the person that whom we have sinned against, if it this, this case, when we walk before them and we're just able to unload, to, to, to say to them what it is that's happened, oftentimes we feel a little bit lighter. Counselors tell us it happens on a regular basis in their offices. And that's a good thing, and I don't wish to diminish that at all, but I'm telling you, it's not the full deal of what needs to happen. There is a level of healing that will take place, but it is not the full healing that takes place. The full healing does not take place until Christ is embraced. We can manage our guilt. We can manage our shame. We can hide as much as we want to. We can act as if it didn't happen. We can try to make it better. We can do whatever we want to do, but it will never fully take it away until such a time as we embrace Christ, meaning he is Lord over even this particular thing that happened. When Christ is embraced, when sin is exposed, when Christ is embraced, there is healing. I am convinced of this. I am I am convinced from my study over the last year and a half, healing is possible for a conscience that kills you, for the shame that rules you. Healing is possible. But it is only available when Christ does the cleansing. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We won't spend a great deal of time here but I do think it sets the trajectory for us for the rest of the message, and it's important uh, that we see this. So Hebrews chapter 10, this is all talking about the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. And it says, the fact that Christ has done what only he can do, that, that now that that is true, these things can happen. What are those things? Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, brothers, we now have confidence to enter into his presence. He says, let's go in there and let's go boldly. Do you enter into the presence of God boldly? Even when you sin? Or do you do like I do on many, many occasions? And I don't enjoy admitting that, but, but I think that somehow or another, God will accept me a little bit better if I come in contrite. If I come in feeling really, really bad about what it is that I've done, if I come in humbly, if I come in head bowed, not head bowed out of reverence, but head bowed as in, woe is me, what a dark worm that I am. Do you enter in like that? Because if you enter in like that, it is just evidence that you, that I, we are entering in with confidence in what we can do to change the mind of God. Rather than entering into the presence of God based solely upon what his son Jesus has done on our behalf. Or do you avoid him altogether? 
After the sin has been committed or the sin that has happened against you, do you just avoid him altogether and not go into his presence? Because of what Christ has done, let us boldly enter into his presence. Let us draw near. And he says with a sincere heart and full assurance, now listen to this, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. There's no doubt in my mind he's referring back to the Old Testament ceremonial law in which they would take that which was unclean and they would wash it in order to make it clean. And what he's saying here is it's not just the washing of water. It's actually the washing of you by the blood of Christ to make you clean. And and, and what God is interested in is not just that you and I would know that we are forgiven. But he sprinkles our hearts so that they're cleansed from a guilty conscience. He wants us to feel forgiven as well. Now, I think the Bible illustrates this powerfully all throughout, but just two places that I've chosen. One is in the very first account of the sin that takes place in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are going to walk voluntarily, willfully into sin, and then they're going to do what we all would have done had we been there, and that is to tuck tail and run. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They enter into this sin and they do what we would have done. They, they know what happens. And so the scriptures tell us their eyes are opened for the first time. Now, not physically because they could see before that. Their eyes are opened spiritually to see the reality of their condition. They're not seeing themselves in a light that is not true. They are seeing the reality of who they are. They are naked and they are ashamed, and so they run this direction. They do what we would do. They, they kind of hide and cover in this manner. They're, they're trying to get to a place where they can walk and live and breathe and move in darkness. Anything to get away from God. Because God is the one who said, be ye holy, just as I am holy. What they are experiencing right now is shame. Dan Allender And Shrimper Longman wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul. It's a great book that tells us how our emotions actually point us to our deepest questions about God, who he is, his ways, etc. It's a fantastic book. They give a simple definition of shame that is powerful. Here's that definition. Shame 
is the traumatic exposure of nakedness. I doubt that there's anyone in this room present today who feels very comfortable about walking into public with not a stitch of clothing on. If that is you, you got way more confidence than I thought you might have. Most of us mortals live in this reality where the thought of that makes us want to vomit. Most of us think that would be the most miserable experience that I could possibly think of. I've heard Randy talk about it before. I have also had this same sort of dream. If you're a psychologist right now, you're probably going to tell me what is deeply wrong with me, and there is something deeply wrong with me. But I've had this dream, the same one that he's had, where, where I, I'm the only, I, I am the only one in the public place that has no clothes on. And I'm trying to find a way to get somewhere else to hide and to cover, and, and I can't get there. That would be, a tra- that is by definition, shame. And what Adam and Eve are experiencing this moment is the shame that is so deeply rooted. Keep in mind, we pointed this out before, they're the only people on the planet. And yet their shame runs so deep that they can't even be in the presence of one another without trying to cover themselves. God made them. God's not embarrassed. Wasn't a big deal for him. And yet they go over and they do the best that they can to cover the most private parts of who they are, the the chambers of their heart that they want no one to see, to feel, to touch. They want no one to interact with. They try to cover in their own nakedness. They try to hide their shame, but they just simply can't do it because what happens? The next verse tells us they are cowering. Verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I love this. God, in his infinite grace, in his mercy, now goes on a relentless pursuit of his people. And he will not let them hide. He will not let them slither away in darkness. He is on a mission to expose them so that they can see the reality, not just of who they are, the reality of who he is. And that's what causes us to live in a place where shame grips us, it holds us, it it has power over us. That's what it is, is when we don't see the reality of who God is, we see the reality of who we are. We've gotta look up and see who he is. And so God goes, where are you? He hasn't lost his children. I have lost one of my children on two occasions. It's not the same child, but yes, I am that bad of a father. And on both of those occasions, we gather everyone around and we we then uh, 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 storm out to find where it is that this uh, lost child is. On one particular occasion, he was just sleeping uh, behind a neighbor's house. And then on another occasion, uh, he had gone into another section of, uh, of the neighborhood. We went out to go find them in a panic. God is not panicked. He's not really wondering where they are. He's not doing this for him. He's doing this for them. He's doing this to say, I just want you to know, I will not let you get away with this. And what they're hearing is, I want to hammer you. And what he's saying is, I want to embrace you. And the reason I want to embrace you is because I know your conscience is killing you right now. And I'm the only one who can heal it. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was 
afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, he knows exactly what has happened. What he's trying to get Adam and Eve to do is to fess up. Tell me the truth. Tell me the whole truth. Tell me nothing but the truth. When we come clean before God, he cleans. The man said, "Uh, the woman you put here with me, uh, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, and he curses the serpent, he curses the ground. What they are doing is standing before God right now with their little bitty pieces of clothing that they have pieced together, doing the best that they can to manage their guilt, to assuage it, to try to cover their shame. The best that they have to offer, they're doing it. God says it's not good enough. Look at verse 21. (laughs) The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God saw their fig leaves. He saw their efforts. I can't imagine him but saying, you know, hey, uh, great effort. It just will not do what you want it to do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to actually cover your shame fully. And so he takes the skin. Skin of who? There's no other person that he takes the skin of. Christ has not yet come down to the earth incarnate, so it's not Christ's skin. God does not have a body, so it's not God's skin. He takes the skin of an animal. God goes, intentionally takes the life of this particular animal, takes the skin from them, goes and wraps it around Adam and Eve in completion. He clothes them. And it's obviously pointing us forward to a time in which God would take the life of his son, the Lamb of God, take his righteousness and clothe us with that righteousness. God was trying to get across to Adam and Eve. You can't handle this one. That's what happens when we sin, when we willfully walk in choices that we make in which we have sinned against God and sinned against others. God clothes us. What about sin that's not really our fault, though? Turn quickly over to Luke chapter 8. Jesus is going to come in contact with the religious leader and with the woman who had no contact with anyone. And he's going to do a great thing for both of them. We will only make reference to what he does for the, uh, the religious leader. We'll look ex- extensively at what he does for the woman. Luke 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a, sin- a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him. To come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Jesus is walking along, and then this religious leader, the synagogue ruler, comes and he falls down before the Lord. I would do it for dramatic purposes, but I may stumble and, and hurt something. He falls down before Jesus and he pleads, he begs that Jesus would do something. Just a quick question How desperate are you for your guilt to be relieved? 
he falls down and then he lets Jesus know that his daughter, his only daughter, needs him. His prized possession, his his jewel, the apple of his eye, the girl that he has taken great delight, great joy in for the last 12 years is sick, and he knows that Jesus is the only one who can really help here, and so Jesus obliges, and Jesus begins to walk with Jairus, and then something happens. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding was stopped. The parallel passage is in Mark chapter five. We won't turn there, but Mark gives us a few more details about this that are important. Mark lets us know that she had spent everything that she had And the series of verbs that Mark gives are powerful. They speak for themselves. She had suffered. All of the things that had happened to her go off in a string. And not only did she not get better, she actually got worse in the process. When it says she had been subject to bleeding, she was was having a menstrual cycle that, that just would not stop. Now, we don't know whether that means that she literally bled every single day or whether she bled way more often than was the norm. Either way, it doesn't matter because you gotta hear this. For the last 12 years of her life, she has been ceremonially unclean. And what that means is that she can come into contact with not one other person. So for the last 12 years, she has been a freak. No hugs, no handshakes, No arm put around her to say, it's okay. In fact, when she walks out of the door, most of the often the people would walk to the other side. She came walking down on this side of the street. They would get over here because you don't want to accidentally touch her. And if you accidentally touch her, then you get cast out. You are ostracized for a period of time. It's like this. Since this had been happening for 12 years, I can't imagine any other scenario that when she walked out of the house, it's as if she said, it's me. I'm the one who's bleeding. Everyone move away. Some of you know what that's like to walk out into public because of your sin. You know what it's like. It's me. I'm the one who went to jail. It's me. I'm the one who embezzled. I'm the one who abuses my children. I'm the one who is an alcoholic. I am the one who lost it on national TV. (laughs) Others of you know what it's like to walk out. It's me. I'm the one whose wife left him for another man. I'm the one who had this happen to me. I'm the one who was abused. I'm the one who was neglected. You know what it's like to walk out into public in a field, every eye staring at you as if you are a freak show. For 12 years, she had been enduring hell. For 12 years, Jairus had been enduring heaven. And both of them had the wisdom to know their only hope was Jesus. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, 
and immediately her bleeding stopped. Now, we don't know whether she touched a tassel or whether she touched the edge. We don't know exactly what that means, but either way, she touched a portion of his garment, and it tells us like that she was healed physically. Now all she had to endure was the next seven days in order to fulfill the law in Leviticus 15. Now she could once again rejoin society. She could once again become a person. (laughs) And right away, Jesus says, who touched me? What she wanted to do is to walk away over here. She came up from behind him Stealth. She came up from behind in such a manner that she could just barely reach out, grab a hold. She's healed. She knows now that she can go back, slither away into darkness, live her life in private. But Jesus will not let her get away with it. Who touched me? Peter. Uh, uh, Jesus. Uh, You may not be aware of this. Large crowds, squishing, can't breathe here. It's difficult for us to move forward, backwards to the side. Um, For you to ask who's uh, touching Jesus, there's no way we can know. Jesus ignores Peter completely. That doesn't even address Peter. He just says, someone touched me. According to Mark, the the Greek verb that's used is it's, it's Jesus asking in this perpetual manner. So he keeps on going, did you touch me? Did you touch me? Did you touch you? Who touched me? Somebody touched me and power went out for me. Who is it that touched me? Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. The woman, knowing that she cannot now go anywhere, she, there's no way that she can come away and cower in fear. There's no way she can kind of come and live her own life now because Jesus is coming after her. She realizes she only has a period of time, and so she comes up, and she falls at the feet of Jesus, and she is trembling in fear. And Mark tells us that she shares the whole truth. Jesus. I've been bleeding for 12 years, and I've done everything that I can. It's cost all of my money. I have no other hope. I heard that you were coming. And so it's true. I made my way up from behind you. Yes, I touched your cloak. I know I have made you unclean. But I thought you were the only one who could heal. Oh, Jesus. Have mercy. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus looks down. I even wonder if he lifted up her chin and said, Daughter. Daughter. Not freak. Not woman with the scarlet bee. Not whatever name you want to fill in there. He looked down and the only time that Jesus uses this term specifically referring to someone as his own. It's the only time in all of the gospels he refers to a woman as daughter. 
He is placing himself on par with God the Father. He is saying, you are mine. You are my child. His power went out from among him and and healed her physically, but his words spoke life into her and healed her emotionally. God wants both for us. I don't know what it is um, today that haunts you. I don't know tonight what it is that cripples you as you move along in life. It may have been something that you did to someone else 15, 20 years ago. And you still have nightmares about it. It may be something that happened 10 minutes ago. 10 minutes before you walked in. I don't know. It may be something that that has been so heinous in your mind. and, And you know you are forgiven, but you just don't feel it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you, first of all, to understand you will not put these three things into practice and boom, you're healed. The the first thing, it's the first thing that Randy told us last week. The first thing I really believe God's calling us to do is to repent. Repent of what it is that you can repent over. I'm not saying repent on behalf of someone else. I'm saying repent for your sin. Maybe your sin is what you've done. Maybe your sin is how it is that you have refused to look at yourself in the same way God does. Repent of your sin. Repentance means this. It means that we're walking in this direction, headed towards ungodliness outside the ways of God. We then turn from this, and we don't turn towards good things. We don't turn towards doing the right thing. We don't turn towards stop doing what's over here and now begin doing this. We are here. We turn up, and we look forward to Jesus. This is repentance. We are not turning from something to something. We are turning from this to him. This is repentance. Repent. Second thing. Appropriately expose sin. Expose sin appropriately to others. And again, this may be something that you have done. It may be something that has happened to you. And for many of us, the best way to expose it is not to come up here on a stage and announce it from the rooftops. It's to go directly to the person that we have wronged and confess it, expose it, share with others what it is that you have done. Can I please encourage you to do do this? For many of us, it will require more than just a confession to a pastor. Go to a counselor. Just as Randy said last week, go to someone that can help you navigate what truth is. Just because you have embraced it over here doesn't mean that you're functioning as if it's true. And what a counselor does is help us to live in light of the truth. I'm calling it exposed. Randy called it reveal last week. The third one, Randy called it rely. I'm calling it consider. Consider Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him the cross, enduring it, scorning its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him so that you will not grow weary. Look to Jesus. The words that you will hear from Jesus in this is your guilty conscience, your shame is is so much bigger than you. 
This is one that only I can handle. Earlier this summer, I had the privilege of speaking at a retreat in um, uh, Myrtle Beach, I think. Somewhere over there. I'd suffered for Jesus. It was terrible. Whole family went along. Uh, we got a, a condo to stay in. Um, uh, they asked us to hang out as a family to play on the beach. We got a chance to hang out with all high school kids. My kids loved it. And then at night, I would be able to talk um, uh, to them uh, uh, about a, a great topic. And on the second to last night, uh, my son Davis comes into my room. I was just laying down. I was particularly sunburned on that particular day. Um, as you see my skin, I don't really tan. I just get multiple shades of red. And so recovering from that, and, and Davis walks in. He says, Dad, Emerson is locked in the bathroom, and he's crying. And so I make my way over to the bathroom, and sure enough, um, he had locked himself in the bathroom, and he was just sobbing. I said, buddy, I, I need you to open the door. And he opened the door. And when the door opened up, the stench from that bathroom was overwhelming. It was obvious he did not make it to the bathroom in time. And so what he had done is, is to take every single wet wipe that we had taken on the trip with us. And so there's an empty box of wet wipes. There's 40, 50 of them out around the floor. And, and he has done the best that he can to clean this up. But there... There is poop on the wall, it's on the shower curtain, it's on the tub, it's on the cabinet, it's on the mirror, it's on top of the toilet, it's underneath the toilet, it's over the door, the handle, everywhere you can think of, um, there is this mess that he has made and he's done his best to try to clean it up and all he's done is smear it all throughout the bathroom. And there he is, sobbing. And he's sobbing because his other brothers had seen it and they were just laughing. And he was so filled with shame at this moment. And so what did I do as a dad? I looked at him and said, you idiot. You moron. I cannot believe you did. Did I do that? No. No. I entered into his mess with him. And then I picked him up becoming dirty myself. And I put him inside of the tub and I turned the shower on and I washed him. I cleansed him and I made sure that he was different from when he started there. And then I took my white towel and I wrapped it around my son. I pulled him out of that situation, put him into the hall. And while I had him there in my arms, I said, son, I want you to know I'm very proud that you tried to clean this up. But buddy, this is a mess that only dad can clean up. And then I went about cleaning it up. You cannot deal with your guilt and your shame on your own. So look up. And you'll hear him say, I got it. Heavenly Father, thank you for who it is that you are and what it is that you have done on our behalf. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that we really would come before you. I pray that you would give us the grace and the strength and the power to repent of our sin, to expose our sin appropriately to those, to you and to others that you call us to do that with, and then just to consider your son Jesus. Help us, Lord, 
to lift up our eyes towards you. We trust you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.